welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us today. I would say as a rule, we're pretty good about announcing the next preaching series. Uh, that was less true uh, at the end of John's Gospel. Uh, we've kept you on your toes. So where are we today? There have been rumors, I suspect, circulating. Uh, but let me dispel those and tell you, uh, we are in Jonah. Uh, we are going back to the Old Testament. Uh, it's a short book, one of the minor prophets. You may find that as you try to find it, some of those pages will stick together. Uh, a less frequented part of Scripture, but edifying nonetheless in God's Word to us. So turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let, let me add by way of further clarification. Um, I had a friend once who told me that there was a Sunday school teacher who announced to her students, today we're going to learn about Jonah the whale. And let me be clear, Jonah is not a reference to the whale, it's a reference to the prophet. Uh, we should be clear on at least that much. So turn to Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise your holy name. We confess that we were once running as far away from you as we possibly could. But in your grace and kindness, you chased after us in love. And through your son, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood and resurrection, you have brought us who were once far away near to you. Father, it is a sweet and life-giving truth this morning that we are no longer rebels and sinners, but sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you, Father, for what you have done for us. And we pray this morning as we meditate on the message of this opening section of Jonah that we would have your same zeal, your same heart for the lost. Uh, we pray that you would use us to make yourself known to others and to draw still others to yourself even as you have drawn us. Father, we pray that your word this morning would make a lasting difference in our lives. If there are areas where we need to repent, show us through your word and empower that repentance through your spirit. We pray that you would comfort us, Lord, where we need comfort. But we desire to encounter you, the one true and living God, through the word that you've given to us. And we pray that you'd graciously allow that to happen. Amen. So from one extreme of Scripture to the other, from one end of Scripture to the other, uh, when we look at God, we look at his character, we see that God is a compassionate and gracious God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but desires to reconcile sinners to himself. 
That is his gracious character. He rejoices when sinners turn from their wicked ways and come back to him. That is what God is like. And yet, unhappily, it so often happens that his people don't have that same heart for the lost. That his people can be complacent and indifferent to the misery, this moral and spiritual misery of those around them. And it's that tension between the character of God and the reticence of his people to reach out to the lost, to the perishing world that we see again and again in the book of Jonah. There's a tension between a gracious and compassionate God and his reluctant prophet. Reluctant is perhaps putting it nicely. Jonah disobeys the Lord, and he desires uh, very much the opposite, as we'll see, of what the Lord desires. He's at odds with the desires of the Lord. But that tension between God's gracious desire that all men should turn from their sins and come to him and the complacency of his people that we find again and again in the book of Jonah. Uh, Before we jump in, I think it will be good for us to take a moment to situate Jonah's ministry in its historical context. Like, what's going on in the background here? We should recognize in the first instance that Jonah is a prophet of God who ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century under the reign of Jeroboam II. We get some of his information from 2 Kings 14.26. You may remember that Israel, at one point in in her history, Uh, was divided into two, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Southern kingdom is Judah with the capital in Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom later had its capital in Samaria. And it was specifically to that northern kingdom that Jonah uh, ministered. Other prophets who ministered in in the same period are Hosea and Amos. Uh, These were men of God who were called uh, to call the northern tribes to repentance. And if you read through 1 and 2 Kings, you'll notice that as bad as the kings of Judah are, uh, the kings of the north, the kings of Israel, are worse. It's one despicable king after another. And the same is true of Jeroboam II, under whose reign Jonah ministers. Now actually, despite the moral imperfections, that's putting it mildly, the, the, the conspicuous moral defects of Jeroboam II, God nevertheless blesses uh, Israel under his reign to a degree. Uh, under Jeroboam II, Israel enjoys the greatest geographical expansion that she has known up to that point. Uh, the people of Israel generally prosper, and the Israelites no longer have to pay tribute under Jer- Jeroboam II to the great Assyrian Empire. Uh, prior to Jeroboam II becoming king, uh, for about 50 years before his ascent, Israel faced a threat from Assyria that Assyria would simply Uh, wipe out Israel. And for a large stretch of that time, tribute was paid to Assyrian kings. But because Assyria underwent a period of turmoil, inner turmoil, for several decades, Israel under Jeroboam II was largely free from the threat of Assyrian domination. And so they could expand and prosper and not pay tribute anymore, and that's precisely what happened. And it was the prophet Jonah that God used to announce to the northern kingdom and to Jeroboam II, her king, that they would indeed experience this time of prosperity. And not at all because of their goodness or obedience to God, but because of his sheer grace. 2 Kings 14.26, we're told, he, that is Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from uh, Lebo Hamath as far as the sea 
of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. There he is. There's a reference in 2 Kings to Jonah, and he's ministering during this time. Now, one thing that's unique about this book is that you have a prophet of the Lord sent not to Israel, the northern or southern kingdom, but sent to the pagans, this brutal, barbaric, and cruel people, the Assyrians. They were, they were infamous for their barbarism even among the ancients. Those are the people that Jonah is called uh, to proclaim the word of the Lord to. Now, this morning, as we look at this opening section of Jonah, we will consider three things. We'll consider Jonah's disobedience to the word of the Lord, the result of that disobedience, and then the urgent plea of the mariners for Jonah to intervene. The book begins dramatically with the statement, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, if you know your Bible, that phrase, word of the Lord, is something of a technical term for prophetic revelation. Yahweh, the Lord, is about to speak to one of his prophets. There is a gravitas, there's a weightiness. What's he going to say? So this word comes to Jonah, and God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So first we need to notice where Jonah is sent. Uh, as I've alluded to already, uh, the Assyrians were famous for their cruelty and barbarism. Nineveh was not the capital city of the Assyrian Empire at this time. It would become so later. But it was nevertheless a prominent city in terms of uh, military prowess and culture. It had a large population. It was vast. And it, and it was, uh, in the minds of Israelites, associated with Assyrian military dominance and cruelty. Just to give us a taste of the sort of people we're dealing with, uh, in the ninth century, there's a royal inscription from an Assyrian king named uh, Asher Nasser Apli II. Asher Nasser Apli II. And he describes the devastation that the Assyrians um, confronted their enemies with. There's a royal inscription that reads as follows. The nobles and elders of the city came to me to save their lives. I erected a pile in front of his gate. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile. Some spread out within the pile, some erected on stakes upon the pile, and some I placed on stakes around the pile. Very thorough description of their cruelty. Almost an accountant-like detailed account of just how hideous, morally hideous these people were. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I slashed the flesh of the eunuchs and of the royal eunuchs who were guilty. I brought Ahiyababa, the ruler of Suru, to Nineveh, flayed him and draped his skin over the wall of Nineveh. And so God says to his prophet, the prophet Jonah, those are the people you're going to go to. That's the city you're going to go to. Uh, their wickedness has come before the Lord. Their wickedness has reached a point where judgment against them is imminent. And you need to go and declare their sins and declare the, the reality of judgment and implicitly perhaps the possibility of mercy if they repent, but that much isn't said. So that is the word of the Lord to his prophet Jonah. Now, what we would expect at this point is that Jonah, the prophet of God, would say, yes, Lord, and go and do what he's told. That's what the prophets typically do when the word of the Lord comes to them. They hear God's word, and they go to the people that God has told them to visit. 
Amos 3.8, so remember Amos is a prophet, contemporary, uh, contemporary of Jonah's. And Amos says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In other words, when God speaks, there's an inner compulsion to say what God says. There's a fire in the bones that drives the prophet of God to declare the message of God. But in answer to the question, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Uh, the, the answer seems to be Jonah would be the exception, you know. He's the one prophet who can hear the word of the Lord and not prophesy. Because his response after getting the word of the Lord is to run in the opposite direction. Jonah doesn't like what he has just heard. Instead of, instead of going to Nineveh, he goes west to Tarshish, perhaps a city in Spain. But in any case, it's west. He goes out of his way uh, to flee from God. And specifically, we're told twice in verse 3 that he went away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? Uh, it could mean that Jonah was behaving in, in an irrational way. He knew, as Randy told us earlier, that God is omnipresent, fully present in every place. There is no escaping God. He is everywhere. And indeed, he says as much in verse 9 when he confesses uh, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. So Jonah well knows the truth of uh, Psalm 139 where we are told, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free from your, flee from your presence? There is no escaping God. So it could be Jonah knew that, but chose to act irrationally. And we shouldn't discount that possibility. Sin is irrational. Uh, to rebel against God is to disregard what we know, the truth about him, and to act in out, of uh, out of step with that truth. So that's possible. He, he knows that he can't escape from God, but he tries anyway. He wants to go as far from God so that he doesn't hear any more terrible messages that he has to send to the Assyrian. That's a possibility. A second possibility is that it's a reference to the temple, right? The symbol of God's presence among his people is the temple, and so possibly Jonah is, is running from the temple. That's unlikely, however, given what we've just said about the fact that Jonah is a prophet from the north, and the capital wasn't Jerusalem. Um, it was Samaria or Shechem. Um, the third possibility is the most likely. Uh, presence of the Lord is in all likelihood a reference to Israel. This is where God makes himself known. This is where Jonah is. And so Jonah in fleeing from the presence of the Lord is fleeing from the presence of uh, the revelatory presence of God. This is, God speaks to people in Israel. Israel is identified with God. And so by leaving Israel, Jonah hopes that he will get no more disturbing messages. Of course, you can't evade the presence of God, but perhaps you can evade the revelation of God, the word of God that he gives to his people. But the point in all of this is he wants to get as far away from God and the mission that he's been given as possible. We notice that Jonah's heart is not aligned with the heart of God. The reason that he's disobeying, the reason that he's rejecting the word of the Lord is that he wants something fundamentally different than what God wants. Now, intriguingly, we're not told at this stage why Jonah disobeys. We're left to guess. There's a suspense here. Why is the prophet of God disobeying God? Now, we're going to be told in chapter 4, but at this point, we're left wondering what's going on. But we can say this much. 
I won't tell you specifically why just yet, but we can say this much. We can say that the desire of Jonah was out of step with the desire of God. The very end of the book in chapter 4, when God acts the way that God acts, Jonah's response is to become angry and frustrated with God. Here's what we're told, Jonah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Jonah says to God, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So do you hear that seething frustration? Why are you acting like this, God? Jonah's deeply held desire is completely out of step with God. And it's this misalignment between Jonah's heart and the desire of God that leads to the disobedience. We need to understand that disobedience is not simply a matter. It doesn't, uh, in the first instant, result just in terms of external conformity to the law of God. Of course, that's a part of disobedience. But disobedience begins in the heart. When our deepest desires contradict the desire of God, it is inevitable that we will sin. When we hate what God loves and love what he hates, we will sooner or later, and more often sooner, rather than later, rebel against the Lord. This is the teaching of Scripture, that the condition of our heart shapes the trajectory of our lives. Where there is a good heart that loves the Lord and loves his ways, there will be a pattern of submission to his will, a pattern of obedience. But where there is a wicked heart that is fundamentally at odds with God, there will be a pattern of rebellion and a lack of submission to God. An evil heart, evil desires produce an evil life. This is what Jesus teaches us in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So yes, sin includes a lack of external conformity to the law of God, but that external rebellion begins in the heart. It begins when we want something that contradicts God's will. When our deepest desires are not aligned with his will and we act on those desires, we rebel. Scripture says that when we place our faith in Jesus, we experience not only the forgiveness of our sins, praise God that's true, but also a radical renewal of our heart a radical renewal of what we are on the inside. Prophet Ezekiel teaches this. Ezekiel 36, 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. If we're going to experience God's salvation, we don't just need uh, to, be, to be given new rules or told to try harder. We, we need to be fundamentally transformed on the inside by God the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens. That miracle happens every single time a person places their faith in Jesus. They, their desires are fundamentally changed so that they increasingly love what God loves and hate what, God's, what God hates. They want to please God from the inside out. Now, it's important for us to recognize this. Uh, it's possible to be spiritually self-deceived just as it's possible to be self-deceived in other areas. A person can claim that they're a Christian and they can even believe that they're a Christian and not be a Christian. They're self-deceived. And one indication that a person is self-deceived about their spiritual condition is that they find the commands of God suffocating. 
they find the will of God to be a spiritual straitjacket. They are reluctant to obey. They want to obey insofar as they don't have a guilty conscience, but mainly they want to be left alone to do what they want. Psalm 119, the, uh, verse 45, the psalmist says, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. In other words, to walk in obedience is to experience not a contraction of your life, but an enlargement of it. To walk in obedience is to walk in open spaces. There is freedom and life in obedience to God. But the person whose heart has not been transformed, when they're confronted with the law of God, they find it suffocating and constraining. And they look at other people around them who are more serious about God and obeying him and praying, and they feel a little bit in their heart that they're somewhat fanatical and somewhat extreme, and they feel, uh, they're, they're thankful that you can still be a Christian and not go to that extent, right? But fundamentally, they don't, want to submit to God. They don't delight in submitting to God. They want to run their own lives. If there isn't a sense at some level of sweetness in the will of God, then there's something wrong. If you are spiritually renewed by the Holy Spirit, then at some level of your being, you're going to say, Lord, I want to obey. I want to love like your word teaches me to love. I want to live generously the way your word teaches. I love your law, and I want to be more and more conformed to it. There is a delight in obedience to God that comes from a new heart. The lack of that desire can point to a, a lack of regeneration or a real spiritual problem. And what we should do if we see that about ourselves is to bring it before the Lord, to confess it, ask for mercy and grace, ask for God to change us on the inside. Of course, we recognize that you can be a believer and still have your heart drift from the Lord, right? And, and quite often, um, we, we have those moments where what God wants and what we want are noticeably different. And when that happens, when we see that our heart is drifting, we are called to yield it back to God. We are called to surrender it back to him and say, Lord, not my will, but your will. As one author puts it, Scripture calls us to resign ourselves and all our possessions to the Lord's will and to yield to him the desires of our hearts to be tamed and subjugated. Our desires are like wild animals, right? Running around every which way, and they need to be reined in. And we do that when we come before the Lord and, and we experience that recognition that what we want is not in line with him. And we say, Lord, not my will, but your will. I sacrifice these desires that don't fit with your will. I give them to you. I place them at your feet. And I pray that you would align my heart, what I want at the deepest level of my being, with your will. Uh, and I find that, at least in my experience, you have to do that with some consistency. This act of self-surrender to God's will. One indication that we are not aligning ourselves with God's will is that there's a persistent pattern of grumbling and complaining in our lives. It's not a one-off kind of thing, but when there's a pattern of grumbling, uh, when there's a pattern of frustration with what's going on, that's an indication that we are not submitting to God. If you're frustrated, I, I wish I made more, I wish my marriage was a happier marriage, I wish I had better friends, I wish I had more influence, I, had, I wish I had more interesting work. Uh, and when those desires start to cause you to chafe at God's, where God has put you, and you start to complain and get frustrated, it's a sign that your heart is out of step with God. And in those moments, you need to come before the Lord and 
It's okay to ask, Lord, can you give me the desire of my heart? Would you please do this for me? That sometimes God does, praise God. But when he doesn't, and he doesn't give you what you might desire, the call is to yield your heart to God and say, Lord, not as I will, but as you, you will. So the heart is something that we have to constantly tend to. We have to constantly reorient it back to God, or as you well know, it will drift. Certainly we see this in the case of Jonah. This fundamental antagonism between the will of God and the will of Jonah leads him to disobey. Then notice the consequences of his disobedience. So he gets in a ship, and he starts going west. And the result is that this violent storm is unleashed upon the sea. It's so violent that even these experienced mariners are filled with dread. It threatens to tear apart the boat. You have to feel bad for these pagan mariners, right? They didn't, what do they do? As we'll see next week, uh, it never goes well for the world when God's people rebel. You see an inkling of this already here. Uh, but there is this tempestuous storm, and so the mariners exhaust their very limited resources. What can you do in that kind of situation if you're a pagan sailor? Well, you can pray to your false gods, which is an exercise in futility. Only Yahweh, only the Lord can save. All other gods are deaf, dumb, mute idols, and they can't do a thing for you. And so pagan prayers are an exercise in futility. We pity them. This is all they've got. This is all they know. And so, so they seek refuge in that which cannot save. And by the way, let's be very clear. Anything that you look to as your ultimate refuge and protection in life other than God is a false God that will finally fail you. Your money, your influence, your relationships can't rescue you. Only God can. And so you are no better than these pagan mariners if you are trusting for your final protection in something other than the living God. But they pray. And they pray, alas, uh, with, with a real sense of futility. The, the waves don't stop. The wind doesn't stop blowing. And then notice how they respond to the hurling that God does. God hurls a storm like a, like a warrior would hurl a spear. He hurls the storm onto the sea, and their response to it is to start hurling the cargo overboard. Right? Here's a practical. They tried the religious solution. didn't work. Now here's a practical solution. Let's get rid of the cargo and lighten the ship, and this might save us. All of these measures are needed because God's storm has been unleashed by the prophet's disobedience. What we need to see very clearly is that to disregard the word of the Lord, to rebel against him, is to experience misery. God will not be ignored, disregarded, despised, and disobeyed. You can't turn your back on the living God, reject his word and his commands, and flourish. Where there is rebellion against the Lord, there is misery in this life, and in the life to come. I think Tim Keller put it very well uh, when he said, the dismaying news is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Recognize that when you rebel against the Creator, it is not smooth sailing. You're... That, the boat of life is about to be blasted with a violent, furious wind. You are going to make life hard and miserable for yourself. The way sin seduces us is it says, hey, if you rebel against God, you are going to go on a pleasure cruise. But what we discover too late is that we're actually on the Titanic. 
And instead of ending up on a calm shore, we end up at the bottom of the sea. In rebellion against God, there is sorrow, there is bondage to wickedness, there is misery, there is death, and there is everlasting ruin. We need to be clear about that because we live in a culture where the music and the, the movies and everything around us is communicating to us that if you turn your back on traditional morality, on the commands of Scripture, then you will be happy, then you will be free, and then you will know life in its fullest. But that's a lie. Those who rebel against the living God will experience bondage to sin, increasing misery, and heartache. Those of you who are younger here today, uh, who've got friends that are not walking with the Lord, and they're putting a lot of pressure on you, they're saying, hey, come with us. We're going to have a good time. Let's turn our back on the things that mom and dad taught you. Let's do what we want. Understand that you are walking into a storm, that you are going to experience misery and sorrow in rebellion against the king. That's, that was the result of Jonah's disobedience. Now notice the urgent request of the captain for Jonah to do something. So what is everybody on the ship doing while Jonah sleeps? Well, they're, they're praying vigorously to their gods. They're throwing stuff out, right? There's the, all of this manic activity on the ship uh, to keep them all from going to their watery grave. There's a real urgency about doing everything in their power not to perish. What is Jonah doing? Notice, you get all this activity, right? They're praying, throwing out the cargo, but Jonah. Notice that contrast. All hands are deck, let's save our lives, but Jonah. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now here's the only guy who can actually help. He knows the Lord. He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows the one God who can actually intervene and fix this. Of course, he's slumbering. So the captain comes down and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing? We're all about to perish and you're sleeping? Get up and do something. He says, arise, call out to your God. And notice the language here. Notice the parallel in verse uh, 6 between what the captain says to Jonah and what God says. God says, verse 2, arise and call out against it. Verse 6, arise, call out to your God. Arise, call out. Arise, call out. I don't know if when Jonah woke up, he experienced deja vu. What? I was just running, running away from arise, call out. What's going on? The word of the Lord keeps reverberating, and it keeps inviting him to turn his attention, to, attention rather, to the pagans in need. And in this case, it's the pagan mariners. Arise, call out. Uh, the pagans need you, Jonah. Will you do something about it? Now, notice the irony. This is a prophet of the Lord, and the pagan captain is calling him to pray. Like, we're all going to die. We need you to do something for us. We need you to pray. And interestingly, there's no indication that he did, which would be true to form. He's disobeying God. Maybe he mumbled a few words. There's no indication that he actually acquiesced to the request of the captain. Arise, call out to your God. And, he, and then he gives him the reason. Perhaps the, God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Like, we've exhausted all of our resources. Jonah, can you help us? Pray to your God, and maybe he's going to keep us from being utterly destroyed. What we see in these few verses is the tension of the whole book in a nutshell. 
Will the prophet of the Lord intervene on behalf of the pagans? Or is he content to be complacent and indifferent to their needs and let them perish? There's a sense in which the world is coming to the church in this passage and saying, we're out of options and we're going to perish. Do you care? Is there anything you can do for us? Because we're going down. Do you care? As the world around us perishes uh, apart from Jesus Christ, is on its way not to eternal blessing but to eternal sorrow, does that move you at all? Does it grieve you at all? Does it make a difference in the way that you live? The character of God is to save sinners. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner turns from his sins and comes back to God. Jesus is the good shepherd who comes looking for his lost sheep so he can bring them together. He runs after them. They don't run after him. He goes, he runs after them, and he pursues them even to the point of yielding his life. That's the kind of God we worship. He has a heart that burns for the salvation of the lost. The problem, of course, is often that's not us. Often we are complacent and indifferent about the lost. These people that we eat with and work with and live next to and play with every day, many of them don't know Jesus Christ and are on the path to eternal separation from God in hell, are perishing. Does that make any difference to you? Or are you complacent? Are you slumbering when the pagan sailors are saying, we're about to perish? Are you sleeping? Or are you alert and ready to offer assistance? The only assistance that uh, you can offer, they don't have. Right? You know the Lord. They don't know the Lord. Just as in Jonah's day, the people around us uh, who trust in their wealth, who trust in relationships, who trust in their power and influence, they're trusting in false gods that can't finally save them. They don't know the Lord. But you know the Lord. And your intervention in their lives can make a difference. Do you care? Does it matter to you? When's the last time you prayed with tears in your eyes for the lost? For some unconverted person in your life? When's the last time you've taken some initiative to help someone else know Jesus Christ who doesn't know Jesus Christ? By the way, as I pose these questions to you, I pose them to myself. I recognize that there are places in my own life where I need to repent and be more faithful to God. And so as I wrestled with this passage, I certainly felt the need to confess my own sin to God and improve. But the challenge to all of us today, the challenge to us as individuals and to us as a church, is to turn from our complacency, to stop sleeping while the wor world perishes, and to have the same heart that God does for sinners, a heart that they would be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. That's what God is like, and that's what his people ought to be like. There's a place in Ian Murray's two-volume uh, biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones where he discusses Martin Lloyd-Jones' decision to move from the practice of medicine to being a preacher. Uh, for those of you who may not know, Lloyd-Jones was this very prominent preacher in London in the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, but before he became a preacher, he was a well-to-do doctor, a uh, very capable doctor, had you know, a long career ahead of him, had money ahead of him, and yet he 
concluded that God was calling him to stop practicing medicine and to become a preacher. And Murray describes one of the arguments that shifted uh, the doctor's thinking, Lloyd-Jones's thinking. Uh, Murray writes, if bodily suffering justifies care for people, what kind of concern is warranted for those who are shut out from the presence of God? However much sickness can be allevi alleviated, men must still die and die deserving hell unless they be first reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, we need medical attention, we need our broken bodies healed, but how much more, if that's true, how much more do we need our souls to be healed and reconciled to God? During this period of reflecting on, on God's call in his life, uh, Lloyd-Jones writes, I used to be struck almost dumb sometimes in London at night when I stood watching the cars passing, taking people to the theaters and other places with all their talk and excitement as I suddenly realized that what all this meant was that these people were looking for peace, peace for themselves. As he looks out at night as people go about their way to entertain themselves, he, he comes to that sobering conclusion that they're looking for peace finally. They're distracting themselves with these amusements that they might not have to look at their moral condition. Does that resonate at all? Is there that kind of weight in your own heart to see those who are running far from Jesus coming to know him? If we're, gonna, if we're serious about following our Lord, then we will desire what he desires. And he desires that the lost would be reconciled through the shed blood of his son. So what should we do to become more like God in this way? Well, first of all, the first thing we need to do is repent. If you, like me, assess your life and conclude that there are places where your attitude and your actions don't line up with God's will, the first thing you need to do is confess that. Repent of it. Ask God to forgive you. And then think specifically what repentance will look like for you. Second thing to do is exactly what the captain on the ship was telling Jonah to do, which is intercede for us, pray for us. Before we do anything else, just as a baseline act of obedience, we need to commit ourselves to praying for the lost. And not just mumbling a few words before we go to bed, but heartfelt prayers in the name of Jesus on behalf of our unbelieving neighbors. Are you praying for the lost? Are you consistently vigorously interceding with Jesus Christ on their behalf. If you weren't a Christian, and you maybe knew one other Christian, but largely didn't know any Christians, what would you want that one Christian to be doing for you? Put yourself in their shoes. If you didn't know the Lord, you were under his judgment, what would you hope people would be doing, Christian people would be doing? You would hope they'd be praying for you? You would hope that they would be finding some sort of creative and winsome way to engage you so as to be able, uh, so, so that you can receive what they have to say? You would not want them to be slumbering while they perish. So the first thing that we, we should do is specifically and consistently pray for the lost. And as we pray for the lost, also pray for ways that we can engage with unbelieving people one way or another, inviting them over, taking them out to lunch, buying them a coffee, whatever it looks like, one way or another, looking for ways to engage. But I, I should say uh, that however guilty you may or may not feel now, it, it won't last very long. Guilt dissipates, right? Tomorrow morning you'll wake up, it's Monday, you've got your own troubles, and it's easy to allow the guilt that you experience on Sunday morning to just kind of 
move you to do nothing. Lasting commitment to the lost comes not mainly as we look at the state of the lost, as important as that is, but mainly as we look at how Jesus has loved us. The Apostle Paul can say in Galatians, what kind of wide-eyed astonishment, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. When we see Jesus spending everything that he has to bring us to God, yielding even his life on the cross, when we see that that is how he has loved us and that is who he is and we bask in his love daily and we feed on the gospel, that's going to change our heart. And increasingly we will reflect the character of Jesus Christ and we will pursue the lost. If we want to be people who have the heart of God for the lost, we need to go back to Jesus, see what he has done for us. And as we behold his goodness and grace, we will do the same for others. Let's not just hear Jonah's challenge, put it behind us. Let us prayerfully think seriously where we need to make changes for the glory of God and the good of others. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would work at CBC and grant that if we as a church lack the love that you have for the lost, we pray that your spirit and your truth would increasingly form that in us. Uh, Grant us to be a people who love lost people just like you do, Father. Grant us repentance and increasing faithfulness in this area. Uh, Father, we ask also that if in our individual lives there are places where we need to change, attitudes that we need to change, uh, we pray that through your word and spirit you would bring that about and cause us to glorify you by pursuing the things that you desire. Amen.